From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 80 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing great. How are you, Michael? I'm doing well, thank you. And I, I'm just rambling around Walt Disney World, I'm sure, having a grand old time. I know. it's uh, <laughs> The weather's been great. The crowds have been amazing. The people have been even better. It's just you couldn't ask for anything more. I know. Fish are jumping and the cotton is high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, anyway, and of course, we are recording this before I leave yeah. for Orlando. So recording this in advance because... When this is released, Craig and I will uh, already be starting on our Destination D journey. So hopefully some of you uh, came out and met us at our Connecting with Walt meetup, yeah. um, which probably by now is done. And yeah. I'm sure we had a wonderful time. If not, uh, then we need to be going to bed. So future <laughs> selves, uh, tell us yeah. to, to wrap it up. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, anyway, yeah. So, this is the big weekend. Mickey turns the big nine zero, and so does Minnie. But you know, I mean, who remembers her, huh? I, <laughs> even though she's a fashion icon. Yes, I did get that far in the um, Mickey's ninetieth spectacular ABC television special it's- on November fourth. I I still have not gotten my whole way plowed my whole way through it as yet i don't think i i found it as horrendous as some of our listeners and um friends on the disboards you're you're allowed to think what you want as long as you understand that minnie is a fashion icon she is well you know you can't go wrong with polka dots yeah yeah (laughs) i mean they're they're eternally fashionable hey it's you know, it, it all just goes around. So if if we should be remembering Minnie on Mickey's birthday, then we should be remembering that Mickey is also a fashion icon the same way that Minnie is. Because yes. they both change clothes just as much. Well, I yeah, I got I saw on your videos that you've put up on um disoplug.com the, uh, the the their outfits for the 90th, they uh they're quite style in there they um fashion icon <laughs> that's all i can say just yeah. over and over again speaking of which have you uh did you have you seen the celebrating mickey blu-ray i did i uh as soon as it came out i ordered it i just haven't dug it out yet to uh or not dug it out opened it up mm-hmm. and started digging through it yet so i know there's only like 13 shorts on it so it's not a ton but um I want to be able to sit back and actually do it justice when I when mm-hmm. I finally watch it. Yeah, I watched it. It's enjoyable. I really it was good. It I, I it's an interesting collection. There there were one or two in there. I'm not entirely sure why they included it. Like um, a simple life. 
Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, out of out of his vast um, collection of, of shorts, why they chose that one, I don't know. Because there's no... It's just one short after the other. There's Unfortunately, there's no, like, Leonard Maltin explaining the significance of these. Yeah. If you've been listening to us, <laughs> or, you, you, or you're listening to us because you already know a lot about Disney, most likely. But if you've listened to us, we've talked about a lot about this. You know why a lot of these were selected. But... Um, that that one that one was I, I wasn't too sure, and then there was another one I was sure was a Pluto cartoon, but it, it had the Mickey um, title card on it. Yeah. But I anyway. generally I, I think that basically they chose anything that was with a Mickey title card that's already been restored uh, mm-hmm. in HD for something like Treasures from the Disney Vault. So. Uh, that that's kind of what I got a feeling of, or anything that was already restored and released previously. Mm-hmm. But I did um, I did read on my one Blu-ray site at least before I bought it that uh, one of the good parts was that Steamboat Willie wasn't it didn't have edits made in it like it's been released in the past. So um, it seems like they at least if that is the case, it seems like they they wanted to do justice with this release and and try to release the best versions of these. So I know it's none of the terrible have a laughs, but um, <laughs> even, even despite those, there's, there's been some of the bigger Mickey releases that have been, had bits and pieces cut out through history and, and obviously for good reason in some of the cases. But um, you know, if, if this is just the first step into more then I'm all for it. So I it's, hope so. Yeah. yeah, I was I, disappointed. Runaway Brain wasn't on it, but I think that's the short they'd like to forget. Yeah, I, it's, <laughs> I, I think I liked it. Though. I think we'll be getting all of them uh, pretty soon here, and I, it is. It's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out with it too. It hasn't really been announced. Um, I know it came up somewhere for pre-order, but uh, you may remember last year at this time, a really amazing film, Coco, was released. Mm-hmm. And alongside that, a not-so-popular film was also released, um, Olaf's Frozen Adventure. And uh, th- that just kind of got tucked away and forgotten about for a little while here. But that's also getting a Blu-ray release kind of like this one did. And they're adding in extra shorts, a lot that have already been released as well, too, kind of like this set. But uh, apparently they're also releasing um, uh, in this set, oh my gosh, the the one sequence from Melody Time with the sleigh in the wintertime. Oh, okay. Um, Is it Once Upon a Wintertime? Yeah, well, yeah, I think so. Once upon a winter time. Yeah, there. That's going to be a part of that release. Oh, so, so, they're, so are they doing like a Christmassy themed? Yeah, yeah. One or wintry so, theme one? Oh, okay. Yeah. So I mean, you have That'd to get Olaf's Frozen Adventure to get the rest. Um, I but I didn't mind that, except that it was clearly a television special that they threw in before yeah. Coco, and they they should have had a shorter short. Yeah, no, I I liked it. Didn't think it needed to be in front of Coco. I'm I'll be happy to own it. I'm more happy to know that, like in the case of Once Upon a Winter Time being in there, that that means that they have worked on Melody Time, and there's going to be an HD transfer of it. So maybe we'll finally 
get that released on Disney Movie Club or somewhere else. So yeah, that'll be good because I think it's down to Melody Time, Make Mine Music, and Black Cauldron are the only ones that haven't been released. Hmm. So okay. maybe Black Cauldron did through Movie Club, but yeah, it's it's getting down there that everything's been on Blu-ray now, except for a couple there. So uh, it's it's time to get the rest. Yeah, I agree. Well, in our series about the history of Disney animated films, we've been discussing the four phases of Mickey Mouse's career. So to sort of recap, it seems like this is an appropriate week to recap it. Phase one is from Mickey's screen appearance from 1928 Steamboat Willie until his 1940 appearance in Fantasia. During these 12 years, Mickey Mouse became one of the most popular stars in the United States. Phase two begins on the eve of World War II and lasts for two decades. And during this phase, Mickey's screen stardom begins to fade, and he experiences a revival with the debut of the Mickey Mouse Club television show and the opening of Disneyland in 1955. Phase 3 covers the turbulent 1960s and into the presidency of Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And Mickey was embraced by the pop art culture and became a time-tested classic. Phase 4 of Mickey's career is from the mid-1980s through present day. Through the fractious political and social climate, Mickey Mouse has now become a global icon driven by nostalgia and brilliant marketing, as we could see in his marvelous television special uh, from the past week. Well, in episode 72 of Connecting with Walt, Craig and I talked about the Mickey mania that swept the nation in the late 20s and 30s. So to celebrate the 90th anniversary of Mickey Mouse on November 18th, we are continuing our series with part two of Mickey mania this week. Now, Mickey's popularity wasn't limited to store shelves. In September 1929, theater manager Harry Wooden approached Walt with an idea to start a theater-sponsored Mickey Mouse Club for children. Walt wholeheartedly supported the idea. The meetings would be free, but theater admission would be required to view the featured movie or cartoon. This would increase box office receipts and confectionery sales, and it would also increase box office awareness for Walt Disney Studio cartoons and their target audience, children. There would also be more opportunities for product tie-ins through prizes and distribution of Mickey Mouse ice cream, Disney character toys, and merchandise at the club. Walt asked his brother Roy to work with Wooden to develop the club. Roy would then report on the progress of the club and implement any additional ideas from Walt for the club. Walt felt a deep responsibility for the values the club would represent to communities and families. The Great Depression was taking hold. Parents were facing unemployment or dramatic wage cuts, putting a strain on the family and on the country. Walt saw these clubs as an opportunity to groom and nurture American youth by teaching them moral values of honesty, integrity, compassion, and patriotism, traits Walt believed children should carry into adulthood. One of Walt's first policies for the club was that club admission would be open to any child, regardless of race or creed. Walt believed in this strongly and would not allow any club to operate without this policy. In 1929, this was unheard of. In 
Most movie theaters had segregation policies, and Walt believed this was morally wrong. Any child would be eligible to join and participate in all functions. Club membership was for children in grades 1 through 7 who were enrolled in school, and membership ended when a child turned 12 years old. Well, you know, I think that policy, really, the people who who claim Walt was a racist, right there is really early proof that that was untrue. And that (laughs) is, that's absolutely a a situation where I, I was agreeing. Uh, with you entirely while you were saying it like because i knew you were gonna bring something up uh (laughs) like this just because we've had moments in the show before where where both of us have said after we're done recording like oh we're maybe gonna gonna go down that road but then ended up not doing it but yeah no i i knew it was on your mind with that and um Mm -hmm. i i i think that was just a really a really bold statement on it because ultimately it's it's all entertainment everyone there shouldn't be segregation when it it comes to something like that entertainment especially again at that that point in time and where the world was so it's it's it it was all universal so it's Mm -hmm. only fair that it was it was treated that way so you know and and some sure some people out there will say well no walt would overlook segregation uh, and all the issues with that just because ultimately it was going to lead to more money for him but that's Mm -hmm. i feel like that's a very pessimistic viewpoint on it so i don't want to hear anyone saying that Mm -hmm. well even like i think we've talked in a previous episode where even um the fact that anybody could go to disneyland in some parts of the country that was revolutionary because even in 1955, much of the country had segregation laws, and they could not go to amusement parks freely, yeah. uh, you know, not all people. And the fact that at Disneyland, anybody was welcome was, you know, was revolutionary to people. Yeah, yeah, and that's, yeah. they, they, that's how it absolutely should have been, and I'm yeah. glad. Yeah glad that it ended up being that way so yeah. you know everyone's a lot at disneyland unless yeah. you've been previously kicked out or uh, or barack <laughs> obama that one time was, for smoking I was, there i know i was just thinking that in the news this week yeah um, we well, dated this episode by bringing that up but that's my fault <laughs> Well, any card-carrying member could be nominated as an officer of the club. Officer positions included chief, master of ceremonies, song leader, who was in charge of leading the Mickey Mouse Club anthem and the national anthem, a cheerleader, who was in charge of starting clapping and yelling hip-hip hoorays after weekly birthday announcements or welcoming back children after an illness and announcing special guests performing at the club. There was a courier who handed out club periodicals, a color bearer to carry the United States flag, and sergeant-at-arms who kept the audience orderly. Walt took the officer nomination even further by ensuring girls would hold equal senior responsibilities in the clubs. There would be a grand Mickey Mouse position held by an adult, a chief Minnie Mouse position held by a girl, and a chief Mickey Mouse position held by a boy. The two chiefs would have shared responsibilities. The sergeant-at-arms would also be a shared position held by both a boy and a girl. I just... 
I, I can't help but keep picturing the sergeant of arms having like a billy club and just standing <laughs> at the front of the theater, just just sitting there, smacking in his hand. Just, Any, come on, make a move. Like, I, I I think what they had to do is just sort of if there if there was rough housing or you know kids acting out, they would tell them to settle down. <laughs> it's, I, I'll take a time machine back one day, yeah. and, and I'll and, let us know on a future episode of this. Yeah, and the boy sergeant-at-arms would tell the um, boy club members to settle down, and the girl would would deal with the rowdy girl club members, <laughs> is how it was set up. And no, uh, But no. again, just as Walt, as the studio grew, he hired women into positions that other studios would not hire women yeah. into. Here he is making sure girls were treated equals as boys yeah. in the running of the club. Well, and that's such an important age to do that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the, you know, no older than twelve. I, I at that point, boys are definitely still in their phase where uh, they're they're not quite as respectful because they don't necessarily see the difference between mm-hmm. boys and girls except on um, appearance wise so um it's that's good to show them that early that they can hold the same amount of power so right exactly and and Walt did believe you know that women should have more opportunities than than working in the home and this was sort of one of his ways to get girls to start thinking about that was to give them a responsibilities of administering the club. So on Saturday, January 11th, 1930 at 12 noon, the first official theater-based Mickey Mouse Club opened for children at the Fox Dome Theater in Ocean Park, California. Wooden invited local merchants and businesses to participate in the program, which kept many of these businesses afloat during the Depression. Neighborhood bakeries offered cakes for children celebrating birthdays, um, dairy sponsored ice cream prizes. Banks offered piggy banks. Drug stores provided candy and trinkets to club members during the meetings. During the meetings, children would receive Mickey Mouse masks, pins, and banners, all sponsored by local or national organizations or by the theater managers. All these free goodies earned the merchants a loyal customer base during the Depression, which helped to keep them afloat. Um, Mickey Mouse Club meetings were generally held on Saturday mornings and would consist of club activities, a Disney cartoon, and a featured film. And the event would usually last several hours until the next regularly scheduled showing of the featured film for the public. Within the first year, hundreds of these Mickey Mouse Clubs were formed in the United States, Canada, and Great Britain. Parents were happy to send their Mickey Mice off to club meetings where the wholesome activities promoted good citizenship. Walt and Roy were so impressed with the success of the clubs, they convinced Wooden to accept a position at their studio as general manager of the Mickey Mouse clubs. By 1932, these Mickey Mouse clubs had more than a million members in just the United States, close to the combined membership of the Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts of America. And more than 400 new clubs were formed in Britain. By 1933, it was estimated there were over 3,000 clubs in the United States with over 3 million children enrolled. 
do you think there's over 3 million people enrolled in D23? <laughs> you don't have to answer that. That's, that's putting them on the spot, but... Uh, I don't I mean, know. You have to think about that, though. That's... 3 million is just flat out insane. It is. It is. And, you know, even though it maybe only cost a dime to get into the theater, you know, that brought the children in to these meetings and, and helped the theaters and these merchants. Yeah. And all that. I mean, it... This is this is really remarkable, and they had signs uh, that the theaters would post these metal signs, mm-hmm. uh, saying that 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 you know Mickey Mouse Club meetings were held here. There's one at the Walt Disney Family Museum, and um, so so you know, and then there are some knockoffs that people have created. Yeah. That you have to watch out for, but uh, yeah, so it, it yeah, this was huge. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Now, Mickey wasn't just popular with children. Adults were painting images of Mickey Mouse on their cars, wearing Mickey Mouse shirts, and creating their own Mickey and Minnie costumes. Now, Mickey Mouse also took to the airwaves on radio. Walt and Mickey had made appearances on several radio shows in the 1930s, often accompanied by Clarence Nash and Donald Duck. In the summer of 1937, Lever Brothers, maker of popular cleaning projects, Products like Lux, Lifeboy, and Vim were looking for a program to, to precede their radio show, Al Jolson's Lifeboy program on CBS. It was being clobbered in the ratings by the Jack Benny program on NBC. Walt was looking for additional funds and publicity for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, which was nearing completion. So with great reluctance, Walt agreed to audition for a weekly Disney radio show, which would begin broadcasting on October 5th, 1937. Walt believed his characters were successful because of their visual antics and not because of their distinctive voices. But Roy Disney flew to New York to negotiate the deal, but due to a dispute over money plans um, for the, sh- you know, the money, the plans for the show were dropped. Yeah, I think ultimately that's probably <laughs> for the better. Um, I, I, I think Walt figured it out. So, well, um, he did, but that didn't stop him. <laughs> <laughs> Because uh, other sponsors approached Walt about putting on a weekly radio children's show. And Pepsodent was able to successfully negotiate a deal with Walt and Roy for a weekly show titled The Mickey Mouse Theater of the Air that would air Sunday afternoons on NBC in the same time slot used by Amos and Andy the other six days of the week. And uh, for folks who don't know, Amos and Andy was probably the top um, radio show uh, at the time. The agreement was for an option on a 13-week show with Walt doing the voice of Mickey Mouse until a suitable replacement could be found. So Walt performed Mickey's voice for the first three shows, and then comedian Joe Twerp, who had once been considered for the voice of Doc in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, took over the role in the fourth week. Broadcast from a theater on the RKO studio lot, the premise of the show involved Mickey Mouse and his friends being transported through time and space by the magic mirror to meet characters from literature like Long John Silver, Mother Goose, Robin Hood, Alibaba, Cinderella, Sleeping Beauty, William Tell, and not surprisingly, Snow White, who appeared twice. 
Walt's attention was on the completion and release of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, so he was not able to devote his storytelling skill and innovation to the radio show. Um, Radio audiences proved Walt's reluctance to take the characters to radio was correct. His characters had to be seen to be enjoyed. When Pepsodent's contract ended after 13 weeks, they signed a renewal contract to cover the remaining seven weeks of the season. The final episode aired on May 15, 1936. After Mickey and his pals saved Old McDonald's farm, the tune Hi-Ho played in the background, as the announcer said. And so, with Mickey and the gang headed for vacation land, we bring to a close the last program in the present series. This program has come to you from the Disney Little Theater on the RKO lot. This experience wasn't a complete waste for Walt. He gained insights that would be of benefit when he entered television. Now, are these still available somewhere to hear, or were they not recorded? uh, Somebody recorded them on disc, and they they have surfaced. At least some of the episodes that they have surfaced. I know I once heard one of them, and 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 they were pretty good. They were entertaining, you know, considering. You know, considering the constraints of the time, and but they see, were a that, lot of fun. I would love to listen to it because just the premise that you read sounds like an absolute disaster. <laughs> um, and, it, but that being said, sometimes it's most entertaining watching a disaster unfold. But um, yeah. well, gosh, the problem no, was it, me it, the problem was it couldn't be watched, and it, yeah. it just was not embraced. Oh, I understand too. Uh, I've tried to get into, uh, I've tried to get into a couple podcasts that are more along the lines of like storytelling as old time radio, and it's very, very hard, uh, especially when when they are on the humorous side, because sometimes you just you don't quite get the humor. You can hear it in the voice, but you do need that visual mm-hmm. alongside to really understand it. So uh, it's. It, it, it's tough. Um, I, I know there's lots of lots of old time radio shows hosted out there in different areas to listen to, and and I do that one. That's something that I want to do at some point in time. Try to really give it a, a a bigger chance to see if I can start getting more enjoyment out of it. But it's radio was a tough gig. It was, and for our younger listeners, of course, television wasn't around and this was the way p- families were entertained uh, radios were enormous and were furniture yeah and and you gathered around that radio and would listen to 15 minute you know television pro or, i'm sorry radio programs or 30 minute you know uh, radio programs every week and they they were as popular as when the golden age of television you know um, yeah and oh. when when I was a boy, they were still rebroadcasting them, yeah. you know, on it's, on radio. And uh, so I heard a lot of these classic shows from the time, you know, Amos and Andy and all of those. So. All I truly know is to be sure to drink your Ovaltine. Yes, that's I think right. That's well, all that matters. Yeah. Well, those of you who enjoy that that Christmas film will see, get an idea of what it was like exactly yeah how our radio listening was like or and go to carousel of progress and yes you can also 
experience history that way too there's a lot of ways out there there are well mickey mouse merchandising of the 1930s ushered in a business practice that would become a hollywood industry standard using products to generate additional income and to promote characters and franchises Mickey's rise to popularity was so swift that by 1934, only six years after his debut at the Colony Theater, he made his debut as a balloon in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. Throughout the 1930s, many writers wrote articles and editorials on the impact of Mickey Mouse on the American psyche. Mickey kept a hopeful attitude in even the most difficult predicaments and always forged ahead. Edwin C. Hill wrote in the Boston American on August 8, 1933, Perhaps Mickey's celebrity is not so amazing after all, when one remembers that he came to us at a time the country needs him most, the beginning of the Depression. He helped us laugh our troubles away, forget our creditors, and keep our chins up. An Albany News editorial on October 4, 1933 stated, When the last plaintive moan of the Depression has faded to a feeble whisper, and the last tear is dried up, it might be well in order to give thanks to a Mr. Walt Disney. Now, the public's craze for Mickey Mouse brought a new and important source of income to the Walt Disney Studio. Mickey was known in every civilized country in the world. Douglas Fairbanks Jr. ingratiated himself to Polynesian natives by showing them Mickey Mouse cartoons. Mary Pickford declared Mickey Mouse her favorite star. In London, Madame Tussauds Museum enshrined Mickey Mouse in wax. The wife of the President of the United States, Eleanor Roosevelt, wrote a letter to Walt stating, My husband is one of the devotees of Mickey Mouse. Please believe that we are all of us most grateful to you for many delightful evenings. In 1935, fans of the mouse had even more to celebrate when Walt Disney announced his newest Mickey Mouse cartoon, The Band Concert. Billboards and banners hailed this cartoon as a tremendous event, and theater owners were beside themselves as they advertised Mickey Mouse in Technicolor. And that is where we will continue our story in the next installment of our series, Mickey Mouse from Steamboat Willie to Fantasia. And it's also the perfect place to end. I'm sure you have it too, but I have my Mickey Mouse uh, Hallmark ornament, the band concert one, sitting here right in front of me on my desk that I oh. look at every time I'm, I'm I'm here doing work. So, I have my Hallmark ornament of Mickey um, sketching, for some reason, one of the chipmunks. <laughs> Is <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> so, I must have missed that one. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, it's an old one. So anyway, so so Craig, do you recall what your first Mickey Mouse Mickey Mouse item was that you owned or received as a gift? Oh no, I, I genuinely don't. So uh, I sure I'm pretty sure that I probably got a T-shirt or something. Uh, as a little kid and I, I can't imagine much more than that and then I I definitely got my personal first Mickey Mouse doll uh, the first time that I went to Walt Disney World in 1992 so I, I know that for sure but 
but beyond that, I I can't really I can't really pick my brain on it that well. So like, like I said, I'm sure it was some sort of clothing item that my parents bought for me or grandparents because you know they were uh, well they still are the, the stereotypical uh, northeasterns that traveled down to Florida for the winters. So uh, back then their place was in Fort Lauderdale and. Uh, so I, I'm sure at some point that I got something from like a, a gift shop store along the way. But yeah, I remember my, my Mickey Mouse plush from my first vacation very well that, again, I'm sure it's still somewhere at my parents' house uh, put away with a whole bunch of other plushes and stuffed animals. And beyond that, I don't remember much with with Mickey. So I was... I will admit, as much as I loved Disney growing up, watched all the movies, I was a pretty massive fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like every boy was at that. Yes, my that son, time. my son, still is. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not, I'm not as crazy as some of my my close friends are with the collecting turtles still to this day, but they they hold a very soft place in my in yeah, my heart. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, it's it it took a little while before Disney overtook that as an obsession. <laughs> so yeah. Now I think mine, if I'm I mean, if I'm thinking back a long time ago, my parents tended to give me books. So I I think it was like a little golden book. You know, and then I got, and then it was comic yeah. books. But then I had, uh, I had a lot of uh, Disney items, like you know, I had, you know, I had Viewmaster. I had all these, which my father threw away. And then I had, I had a ton of Viewmaster slides. Yeah. And and I had this cool. Um, it was like this little when I was little. This little it was like a little projector, and you put in slide strips, and you projected it. The screen was like the little box that it came in, and and then and what it was is it it was the story of like Sleeping Beauty and Snow White in these little and it was just stills from it. Yeah, and and it sort of told the story. It's a funky little thing, but I loved it because you know you saw these images from the film. You know, in your house that were bigger than a Viewmaster. Oh, it sounds cool. No, and I, yeah. I was right there with you. I, you, you hit the nail on the head right there. As soon as you said the little golden books, I'm sure I had a Mickey Mouse one. I, mm-hmm. I can almost remember it uh, completely. Um, I, I know we had another Mickey Mouse book. I think it was a Christmas one as well. And then you say in Viewmaster, um, I also had passed down Viewmasters uh, to the point that we actually had we had some of the ones that you could like see in the the Toy Story Land queue so we had we had a couple of the Disneyland ones not the uh-huh. not the complete I did too. set um definitely had the Peter Pan ones and a couple other films mm-hmm. and and Mickey so it's I just yeah. I completely forgot about those until until you mentioned them and and not not to take away too, but then, uh, of course, I grew up in the age of Happy Meals, and uh, McDonald's was making <laughs> toys for Disney too, and I completely forgot about those. You just—I should have let you go first because <laughs> clearly all my memories are now flushing back to me. Yeah. Well, I had before Happy Meals, and they, I got these at Disneyland. It was, um, it was these funny little figures they i think they were, i'm sure they were plastic and the, and the legs move but what you're supposed to do is put them on a slight incline and then they would walk you know by the force of gravity and i had a pluto and, we, and he worked just fine i had a donald duck he would fall on his face and um, 
and all that. And, you know, I'm sure I have those because they were probably inexpensive at the park. But uh, but I remember those were some of my very first ones. And I had a wind-up Mickey, you know, and all that. So, And then I had, um, I had records, children's records, but... In, no, in in my day, children's records were they were in between the sizes of like a full LP and a little forty five, and they were yeah. thick. Oh no, <laughs> I, I have, I've seen I some of a, those before. Yeah. I've almost bought a couple, thinking like, oh, I I definitely have to get this, and then I see that it's like I don't think my modern record player has any way to play this. Yeah, because they played a thirty three and a third, I believe. And, they were just uh, a strange size. Yeah, oh. okay. and and uh, but uh, I still I have three of mine still. Oh, so, very yeah. cool. Yeah. So anyway, but. I'm looking forward to the next episode uh, in our continuing series of Mickey Mouse. But first, we have to get to this day in Disney history for the week of November 18th. And again, because Craig and I are busy at Destination D, we are doing our alternate format where Craig goes solo and dazzles us with his command of all that Ooh. is Disney. Not if it's like last week. I will. <laughs> you are you are not dazzle, but <laughs> anyway. Well, here we go for November eighteenth, and you'd think I'd be asking about what debuted at the Colony Theater, but I'm not. It's not going to be that easy. Oh no, it is. Uh, <laughs> Mickey Mouse in Steamboat Willie. <laughs> Minnie Mouse was also there, fashion icon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, and Sophia, what's her name? Sinking breathlessly. Carson. (laughs) (laughs) On his official last day as president of Disneyland, what did Jack Lindquist dedicate at Disneyland on November 18th, 1993? Um, I think I know the answer to this. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's one of those things I think I've always taken for granted, thinking that it's been there for years and years and years, but it really hasn't. But it it was the partner statue, wasn't it? That's right. Absolutely. So and also officiating the ceremony was Roy Disney. And it's Walt and Mickey Mouse and it's sculpted by Blaine Gibson. Yep. Yeah, I, I just it, I I've known this one but I just saw a picture of that Haberia uh, pre-partner statue just like in the past day or two. And I just, every single time I forget that it wasn't always there, even though it feels like it has. Yeah, and how Walt despised having statues of himself. And we talk about, in the 60 Years of Disneyland series, we do talk about this, the history of this statue. So you might want to go back and listen to that. Did you get the Hallmark ornament, the partner statue? I didn't. So at least I don't know if I did. I always let my mom have first choice on what she gets for me ornament-wise. And then Mm -hmm. I go in and and clean up from there. Yeah, obviously every now and then, like with a Muppet one, I don't let it it up to fate. I go in and (laughs) and get it myself. But uh, yeah, I'm I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I might have it. I might not. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, um, November 19th, 
What family connection to Walt Disney did we lose on November 19th, 2013? Was that... Was that Diane? Yes. Yeah, I thought that definitely we should remember... Definitely remember her. Uh, Yeah, Diane Disney Miller, the eldest daughter of Walt and Lillian Disney, um, passed away at the age of 79 at her home in Napa, California. Uh, Miller founded the Walt Disney Family Museum, which opened in 2009 in San Francisco's Presidio as a tribute to her father and her family's legacy. So, um, and uh, yeah, so the, the museum's celebrating its 10th anniversary. Wow. So, yeah. So... Okay, uh, very good. So, so far, November 20th, Disney adds a $10 bill to its Disney Dollar series on November 20th, 1989. Who is depicted on this $10 bill? Mm, That is a tough one. It has been forever since I've seen anything Disney Dollar related. Only half. Um, I... Just actually, when we were going through the auction items for our uh, silent auction that we have coming up on November 24th, uh, someone sent us in uh, $1, Disney dollar. So if the answer, if it would have been about that, I could have told you Mickey was on the $1 mm-hmm. one. I don't remember the 10. I'm going to say Goofy. No, no, it's your favorite fashion icon, Minnie Mouse. Ah, oh, geez, Louise, it would be. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah, and Jack Lindquist, we have him to thank for those Disney dollars. It was his idea. Yeah, I, I know, I have at least a one dollar and a five somewhere, mm-hmm. but we have we have quite a bit stashed somewhere. Carol was was into getting um getting eat one of each every year. Yeah, each denomination. I, I mean, honestly, when they were big, it was when I was a kid, and so when my parents would buy them for us, we would obviously spend it, mm-hmm. not thinking in that form. So a lot of them from when I was growing up, I just I always spent. So I think the ones that I have, a friend just gave them to me at one point in time because she knew I liked Disney and didn't have any use for them. So that's the only reason I have the ones that I do have. Yeah, they they they're nice little works of art. Yeah, I really like them. Oh, very pretty. Yeah. Okay, November twenty first, a new attraction opened on November twenty first, nineteen ninety four, in the Magic Kingdom's Tomorrowland. Which attraction opened? I. Okay, so that. I'm getting confused. I there's two attractions. I, is it a retheme of an attraction or a brand new attraction? It's it's it you it reuses a show building. That's what you mean by a retheme. I meant like did it just just slightly update from its previous iteration or was it brand new? Um I guess it was brand new, although it did incorporate some of what had previously been in the show building. Okay. I, based on the crypticness of all this, <laughs> I couldn't remember when Delta Dreamflight 
opened. That was the only other thing in my mind, but I think it would have been Timekeeper. You are correct. Because it still used that Circle Vision 360 film, but it also had audio animatronics and special effects. And it replaced yeah. America the Beautiful. And um, and then, of course, the camera was uh, Nine Eyes. <laughs> so, yep. um, anyway. So, so um, yeah, so that keeper. was very good. And, of course, the timekeeper is voiced by Robin Williams. I'm glad I got it because on my backpack I wear a button that says, I miss timekeeper. So. Oh. Okay, November 22nd, comedian and actor Bob Hope appears at Disneyland on November 22nd, 1999 to inaugurate a new tradition. What tradition did he inaugurate? I do not know. Okay. It was the first official lighting of the holiday lights at the park. Oh. Yeah. So... I sorry no that just kind of is, so would it be similar like official lighting similar to like how we have our castle lighting for the first time every year or something yeah else? I guess it's a, it was a little ceremony and it was just like switching on the lights along Main Street and on the Christmas tree the castle didn't have lights yeah but yeah, um, but yeah so th- that's what it was oh no that that sounds classy I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. They did anything like that for the very first night of lighting. So Mm -hmm. that's cool, though. Yeah, I don't know if they still do. Yeah, it's a shame if they don't. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, okay, November 23rd. Epcot's Spaceship Earth reopened with a new narrator on November 23rd, 1994. Who is the narrator? That would be Jeremy Irons. That's right. That's right. And, of course, it is the third version of that attraction as well. Yes. All right. Let's see. November 24th. This is our last one. What holiday tradition debuted at the Disney MGM Studios on November 24th, 1995? There's only one holiday tradition that I can think of uh, that's also no longer there. So just like potentially Disney's first lighting, Disneyland's first lighting, uh, some good things come to an end. I believe the only tradition would be Osborne Family Spectacle of Dancing Lights. That's right. That's right. And that was its first time and the overwhelmingly positive reaction from Walt Disney World guests will turn the park's residential street, because that's where it was in the beginning, um, you know, will turn the park's Christmas display on residential street into a yearly tradition. And of course, it was initially constructed by Arkansas businessman Jennings Osborne as a gift for a six-year-old daughter Allison, until the neighbors complained a lot. I think got a couple laws passed against them. um, So it became one of the most popular attractions during the park's holiday season. I would say it was it was the most popular attraction. Yeah, it was it was my family's favorite thing uh, to to go around and see just because you just went at your own pace. You enjoyed it for as long as you wanted to and just you know even even when it was super crazy in there it seemed like everyone was there for the same purpose 
so it was always just it was always just relaxing and with the snow and the music it just everything came together so well Uh, they always had like the roasted nuts back there too so it had that that smell of christmas all in Mm -hmm. the air so Mm -hmm. i i miss it dearly like everyone does and i would have to stay there the whole time until i was sure i heard the whole sequence and the whole loop you know a couple times and uh, and then what was was it that purple cat? What was it that was yep. always hidden? Yeah, they, oh my gosh! I had a devil of a time finding that thing. Yeah, they had the, the purple cat. They had the uh, the Arizona or well, not Arizona, Arkansas Razorback that they would put around places too. So mm. it uh, it, it was just such a great tradition year after yeah. year. It's <laughs> I if. I know they they will never bring anything back like that, but I just if they would have that still to this day with all the other additions they've made at Hollywood Studios, I can only imagine how insane this park would be for Christmas. It would it would own Christmas at Walt oh, Disney yeah. World, in my opinion. Well, you know, and the, the Osbournes would have to be. Um, if the stories I hear are true, the Osbournes would have to uh, come down in their price significantly, for yeah. because the original contract, you know, that they entered into with Jennings um, ended, yeah, and then the family realized, hey, you know, we could probably make a more lucrative deal, and Disney just said, you know, <laughs> thanks for no thanks. Yeah, it's you know, but everything good was not meant to last. Yeah, unfortunately. I, I was always surprised it didn't end up somewhere else. Uh, like uh, Universal or SeaWorld or something. I, I think that it, it's still not over in terms of that. I think eventually we'll see it pop up on a really big scale somewhere else. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's it's only been a couple of years at this point. Three years, I think, yeah. since its final and run. So I'm not sure if I heard there was an agreement that there had to be a sort of like a cooling off before period before they could bring it elsewhere. Yeah, I'm almost positive I heard that somewhere. It, I mean, it would make sense. Just kind of like uh, some like some people sign when they're taking a job uh, non-compete. So it could have easily been the same thing with, with Disney. It would, it would make sense. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, you know, it's all about Mickey Mouse for us this weekend, Craig. <laughs> so, um, what is it? Do you think? You know, we just had that fabulous 90th anniversary uh, celebration mm-hmm. on television, and we're ex- it's a whole Mickey weekend. And uh, what do you think it is about Mickey that continues to captivate children and adults from around the world after, you know, nine decades? I think it's just simplicity. So it's. Mickey isn't complex, at least not, not a, I don't know the best way to say it. He's not a difficult character to understand. He's drawn with a, drawn and brought to life with a dimensionality, if that's even a word. Uh, if not, I just made it up where everyone can find an aspect of their life that resonates with Mickey. So, and it just comes back to that simplicity. He's easy to look at the same way he's easy to put together with just those three circles. It's just, it all 
feels comfortable. And, you know, with unless they really take his personality and make him any more disgusting than they already have kind of gotten towards with the latest iteration of Mickey. Sure, yeah. the way you would yeah, feel. He has it. some bad habits. Yeah, <laughs> and, unless they got any any worse than that, um, I, I just can't imagine people falling out of love with Mickey from his early times being a prankster and slightly mischievous to then becoming the endearing character that we know and love, and just really solidifying that. It's it's just it's special. You don't you don't run across a character like Mickey. Every day, no, week. no, not with the longevity, and and I think that they find, and I think children just find him so lovable and funny, and all that. Like Halloween, you know, we have our neighbors they have a little three year old boy, and you know, I had all our decorations up, and I had a couple of those, you know, pro- Halloween projections from Lowe's, and on our garage door, I had one where it was. Mickey and friends in their like their Halloween costumes swirling around, and I had you know I also had Jack Skellington. I had other stuff going on, but it was that Mickey Mouse <laughs> that got him excited and all that. So uh, and I thought, wow, I mean, you know, Mickey's still connecting even with the young young ones after ninety years. So yeah, good for you, Mickey. Yeah, absolutely. So, if only we could all do that. <laughs> so. Well, many books, films, articles, interviews, and lectures are sourced for this episode of Connecting Us Walked, including Mickey Mouse, The Evolution, The Legend, of Phenomenon by Robert Heidi and John Gilman with Monique Peterson and Patrick White. The Book of Mouse, A Celebration of Walt Disney's Mickey Mouse by Jim Corcus. Walt Disney, an American original by Bob Thomas. Mickey Mouse, 50 Happy Years, edited by David Bain and Bruce Harris. The Mickey Mouse Treasures by Robert Tyman. Life Celebrates an American Icon, Mickey Mouse at 90. And Walt Disney, Saving America's Lost Generation by R.H. Farber. Well, next weekend, the United States will be celebrating Thanksgiving. So Craig and I will be taking next week off to celebrate and give thanks with friends and family. And we are grateful for our Connecting with Walt family for welcoming us into your homes each week. So from all of us to all of you, a very happy and blessed Thanksgiving. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners find you on the Dis Unplugged network of shows? As always, you can find me Tuesdays on the Walt Disney World Edition podcast, Wednesdays on the Best and Worst of Walt Disney World, Thursdays on the Universal Edition podcast, and random days on the Dis Daily Fix, plus always on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? You can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com, Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook at Michael Bowling, Instagram Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on our official Connecting with Walt Twitter page at Connecting Walt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplugged.com and look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney. 
and his brother Roy. And happy birthday, Mickey and Minnie Mouse.